Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, this is Sarah Archer. Before we get started with today's show, I have a quick word. Charlotte Reader's podcast now has podcast books. It's true, we have two kinds, fiction and nonfiction. Our fiction book is titled Death by Podcasting, co-written by Landis and me. It's a comedic mystery where we make fun of podcasters and writers in the vein of only murders in the building. It was a lot of fun to write, and it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. We also have eight nonfiction quote books created from over 500 podcast interviews. The Right Quote series is a collection of inspirational and practical quotes about writing, publishing, and book marketing from the first four years of the podcast. The books come with forewords and reflections by Hannah, Landis, and me. They're available in paperback and ebook. And here's a bonus. The first ebook in the series about the writing life can be downloaded for free. You can find links for all nine books at the podcast books page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. And if you read our books, thanks for reading. Now let's get on with the show. In this episode 378, we feature Hugh Willard, a psychotherapist, singer-songwriter, and author with a career spanning more than 30 years, and his book Finding Beauty in the Gray, Stories and Verse from the Third Age, which Kirkus Reviews calls a thoughtful, upbeat, and accessible primer on understanding and enjoying middle age. The book is filled with stories, essays, and poems that address the common themes of identity, meaning, relationships, and exploring creativity. It's a book for third-agers, a term we will discuss, and a book for those who wrestle with tackling what's next as they move into and through their third age. Hugh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Landis. I'm excited to to have a conversation. Yeah, and congratulations on the publication of Finding Beauty in the Gray. So before we talk about the book, um, a little bit about you. You're in the lead here. I said you're a psychotherapist. uh, Sounds a bit scary there, but yeah, psychotherapist, uh, singer-songwriter. <laughs> I am taking notes. Yeah, singer-songwriter. And you're an author with a career uh, spanning more than 30 years, and you've developed and taught these courses on exploring identity, meaning, and creativity in the second half of life, and you've published a children's chapter book, a YA novel, a novella. Uh, you're doing. You're working on your MFA in nonfiction. Uh, you also have a podcast um, titled Aging Well, Finding Beauty in the Gray. And I guess my first question is, um, we're going to be talking about creativity a lot today and things that people do or don't do in their third age. Did being a creative person come naturally to you or did you kind of through your career as a psychotherapist and your study of creativity, did it sort of convince you to work harder on trying to put on all these different hats? Great question. Um, You know, from this vantage point, when I look back, it's been an organic part of my experience all my life. Uh, the question is, how aware was I? How did I engage and and and, and really employ that in, in different contexts and circumstances? I've always been creative. Again, I, I say we all are. The question is, how in touch are we with that sense of creativity? It's always been there for me. With respect to its formal application, that, that's been an evolution. That's been a a learning curve, an uneven learning curve. Um, 
my interest in pursuing it more both with my own personal experiences but also within my psychotherapy practice that evolved over time and it, it part of the experience for me was years and years of working with folks who have various you know presenting concerns things going on in their lives and and you know there certainly are important uh, strategies approaches to help people mitigate you know the the difficulties and challenges that they have but I just felt like that was not enough and, and it just didn't speak enough to the generative side of things now there's plenty of therapists who are going to probably quibble with me on that <laughs> and, and that would be fair to say in the course of looking at the strategies the interventions to help people that should be absolutely right there in the midst of that and that is what are the things in our lives that help us to become more um, you know just just more engaged more generative more uh, just to, it's a part of our self-definition, you know, just to be able to produce. And it's not from the vantage point that we have to define ourselves and be evaluated on the, the quality and the quantity of output we have, but rather just coming from the essence of who we are. Um, and so the creative process is essential to that. So helping people do that, that formally started to happen in the therapy practice. I, I'm not going to say that that then in turn sort of stirred the, the the personal side for me which is the writing and the music and other sorts of pursuits but they kind of ran parallel but it certainly you know they, they certainly supported each other I would say mm. well you the book title is finding beauty in the gray stories and verse from the third age and I think it might help our listeners to sort of ground them uh, in a definition here you talk about this term third age what do you mean by that is it like the third act of life is it uh, is there an entry point and an exit point? What are we talking about? There are some fuzzy um, parameters or boundaries to it, but yes, that's well said, a third act of life. Um, it originally came from a, a Frenchman years back um, who coined it, and his name is going to, of course, escape me in the moment. But um, he was looking at when we consider different facets of life, different times of life, a lot of attention has been focused on certainly the uh, the zero to 18 plus years, time of a lot of change, a lot of rapid development. Uh, we had a lot of uh, psychologists and, and other uh, researchers who have explored that and been able to help us understand some of those things. So we had that. And then we had this long period of adulthood and it wasn't really considered that there was a lot of substantive change within that um, before we get to older age meaning of course that's a relative term but more the, the end of life kind of time and but thankfully there's been more research you know in the last few decades or so and there's been more look at developmental stages within this long expanse of adulthood and um, so really, when we're talking about third age, we would say first age, let's talk about that being that zero to 18-ish plus. And then second age, we would talk about that as that long expanse of the adult years, oftentimes defined by uh, family and vocation. Uh, vocation, of course, being formal or informal in the home, out of the home. But it's a, it, that tends to be the, the large markers of that time of life, those uh, senses of responsibility and engagement. 
And then we move into this period of time, which is really before, certainly as the years go along for us, uh, as we move along in, in, in time, and we have absolutely much more uh, advances in medical uh, systems and technologies and capacities. And so we're having this longer stretch of time that we can live with relative health. And, uh, but it is past the child rearing family uh, supporting years for many of us. And it is past the uh, vocational, the career years for many of us. So it's this time. Now, of course, plenty of exceptions, folks that have different circumstances around family and, and work as well. But typically it's a time of life uh, that, that succeeds the, the second part of, of our you know, second stage of life. And it's typically uh, characterized by a lot of space, uh, more freedom, time to do things, obligations have shifted and opened up. Um, we are coming into more experiences of losses, and that oftentimes can be with the generation ahead of us. Um, changes that come with respect to leaving work and relationships there, possibly relocations. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot to it that it is important that we explore and try to have a better way of um, integrating what these experiences are. So out of that, we'll make choices that are going to be, uh, you know, more helpful for us, healthier for us. So third age is that time that sort of situates before we're riding off into the sunset and, but when we're past some of the heavy lifting that we did earlier yeah, that's great. Well, um, you have a quote in the book. You say that the third age time is a marathon, not a sprint. And I suppose that for those of us who are in that third age, we want it to be more of a marathon and last longer <laughs> and not be so much of a sprint. But but oftentimes it feels like if you're active that uh, you're still moving at a pretty good clip and the days are moving by. Talk, talk about what you mean by third age time is a marathon, not a sprint. Well, too often folks are approaching the third age without due consideration and preparation. They may just have this idea that, um, you know, that, that it's, a, it's a formal marker to hit that line that is retirement. And so they may, and, and I mean no disrespect to anyone, I'm not suggesting people are completely head buried in the sand, but uh, the, the idea is that they approach that the sprint really you would say is is leading up to crossing that line that is retirement um, once they hit that it's like okay i'm going to kick back drink in my hand tv on maybe hit the links every now and then uh, do some travel but there's not really a consideration for enough consideration for many folks that um, they got a lot of years and uh, it's a pretty quick road not to be too dramatic but it's a Quit, uh, pretty quick road to decline if there's not enough healthy engagement um, in activities and sense of purpose, and that's the marathon. We got to we, we got to keep moving. You know, we're mm -hmm. going to atrophy if we don't. Again, I don't want that to sound too dramatic, but there's a, I, I do cite some research in the book where there's a, a, there's a lot of consideration for how there are quick declines for folks who are not um, emotionally. And, and, and cognitively prepared for this season of life. Um, they're just sort of ready to, ready to you know, hang up the, uh, I'm gonna say that again, 
they're ready to um, you know turn in the keys to the office and um, you know hang up the badge that they wear and say it's it's time for me to relax and and please do by all means please you know relax and, and enjoy yourself you've, you've you've earned that but know that you haven't you haven't hit the real finish line you got a long ways to go so yeah and that, that brings me to a question about your title um, when I first read it finding beauty in the gray on the one hand it can be viewed as descriptive of the text you have in here the prose and the poetry um, but when you combine that title with the title of part one of your book, which asked the question, who are you really? Um, this sounds a little bit more like uh, a book that's challenging you, sort of a prompt to figure out who you are, who you can be in your third age. Is that kind of what you had in mind when you wrote this book? Yes, yes. It Yes, absolutely. And it's also a, a bit of a pushback against prevailing um, messaging that's been a part of our societal experience for many years about the decline that comes with age, limited capacity, uh, out to pasture, you know, some of those sorts of uh, cliche phrases. And, and uh, that's just not true. They, the who am I really or who are you really, that's more of a it's time to take account again. Uh, I think for many folks, you know, I mentioned the, the first age of life, you know, that zero to 18 age and lots of changes, lots of trying to figure out who we are. And that leads up towards, for most of us, finishing high school and some direction, college, work, military, uh, and then choices for a career. That's a, that's a very formal time of, you know, who am I? What are my skills? What are my interests? Um, and then that gets hopefully reinforced or re-explored into our adult years. Obviously people switch careers at different times, but, but then again, we come into the third age and we can take our foot off the gas. It's okay to take our foot off the gas a little bit, but that should be in the direction of, I, it's time for me to take, have another accounting. What matters to me now? Uh, because certainly what matters to me now is gonna have some through line over the course of our lives based on our constitution, our personality, um, our experiences. But there's much about us that is going to be evolved because of our experiences, because of our relationships, both, both you know, for the, for the positive and the negative. So it does matter that we explore that. And, you know, there, there are things that I was very good at and very interested in, in when I was younger. And I have no interest in now, I may or may not still have skills for them, but I have no interest in them. And that's, that's just a, you know, that's just an aggregate of, of time and experience. And so, so what else matters to me and, and how, how do I explore that? How do I pursue that? How do I engage that? And so we need to do that. Then. Well, let's talk about the research for this book, because while it is written, um, you know, with, with some authority attached to it, you, you've done your research, you, you, you are a psychotherapist, you bring a lot of that into the equation, but a lot of this appears to have become come to you organically through uh, people that you've worked with, stories that you've been told. Um, at what point in time did you decide, you know, I'm going to write this book, and gosh, I wish I'd taken better notes? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> I suppose that came relatively late, uh, and, and maybe I'm the better for that. Um, you know, it's certainly today, it, research is, is readily accessible. Uh, we all have our, uh, 
you know, we all have the internet, we can just scoot around and if we know what we're looking for, then certainly we can get to those things. Uh, but I intentionally, I, I started out the book saying, this is not a self-help book. Um, you know, and, and that might have been a little strong language and I was having a little fun with that. But, and I do cite research throughout the book, but my interest as both a psychotherapist and a writer is looking at the high value and high quality of story, of narrative. And um, with uh, a fair degree of respect for my colleagues who have written the self-help books, um, you know, there is a way that it can become a little bit boilerplate um, where, you know, I'm going to express an idea I'm going to give you some research that supports that idea and I'm going to give you a slight illustration of a client, of an experience I had in, in the store or something. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think that feels like it offers more, um, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say veracity, but it feels like it offers more kind of heft to it. But I intuitively, um, my experience and my understanding is that we are going to relate most to stories. It's been that way from time immemorial, and um, that's how our brains do work. Uh, our brains are pattern-seeking uh, organs, but since we've evolved and, and grown these really big uh, neocortices, these these parts of our brain that allow us to think about our thinking and go all over the place, story has become at the fore of how we understand um, our experience. If we think about, for example, metaphor, um, you know, metaphor is a higher order processing technique. It has nothing to do with the primitive brain. It has nothing to do with fight or flight and you know, the predator's over the ridge and I better hightail it and run faster than my buddy, so I'm gonna survive. Um, metaphor gets into a different space and speaks to that, you know, that higher part of our brain that allows us to understand. Um, and metaphor comes in story, and it's not the only thing that comes in story. We can relate to literal storylines. That's what we do. We try to orient to, um, you know, other people's, we try to orient to ourselves, know ourselves through knowing others. Um, and so that really pushed me in the direction of wanting to share a lot of stories that highlight these salient issues that are part of the third age and give some research to support that, but really kind of flip that, that uh, ratio to have it heavy story and a little bit of touch to say, let's reinforce it. So. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of story because as I've talked about, um, you know, my shift uh, from being a lawyer to, to being a writer and a podcaster, I've kind of thought of this whole evolution as kind of a three-act structure. You know, most plays and many novels are written with a three-act structure where in that zero to 18 period of time is sort of your inciting instant. You know, everything that can go wrong might go wrong. And then you have what they call the muddy middle. It's the middle of that book where you're trying to figure things out, become more mature, you know, whatever. But then there's this plot twist um, this marker at about the beginning of that third act where things start to ramp up and get really exciting, which I like to think of as, okay, maybe there is something after 
that muddy middle that is exciting. And uh, that's kind of what you're doing with it. Of course, there's the denouement. That would be the fourth age, right, when, we, when we're wrapping things up and, and leaving things behind. But uh, it, it, this idea of uh, being creative and, and exploring, and you must talk to a lot of your clients about this in sort of an encouraging way uh, as they enter this time period. I'm just wondering, is that, um, I've always thought of, you know, people needing therapy for sort of crisis type events or things that happen in their lives or grief or whatever. But it seems like this this time period between that second act and that third act is kind of a crisis period for a lot of people. And you're, you're probably seeing that in your practice. Yeah, I, I love that illustration and that alignment um, with the structure of a story in a book. Um, and it's, it's very fitting, very apt. And yes, to your question, um, you know, crisis, uh, I think crisis is a word that carries with it a certain limiting character um, in terms of uh, just societal consideration. Crisis has this, you know, there is an acuity to it that I think that's a, a marker of crisis. But um, I don't know how often that we would look at crisis as having um, inherent value. Uh, I think we would maybe on the backside consider possibly that this was important and it helped me to move. But uh, if so, if, if in a way we could frame the movement from the second to the third age as, um, as a growth, um, you know, instructive enzymatic crisis, yeah, I mean, there is, and you know, if we just, if we get away from those words and just say crisis, I mean, I think that's still fitting because it involves such, for many of us, a significant shift. Um, and again, this, this may sound like navel gazing a bit, but the who am I question, um, you know, many of us, we probably don't want to take the time to really slow down and really sit with that. We wanna keep going. And the challenge there is that we can maybe, it sort of gets past us that we aren't tuning in enough to all of our integrations, all of our learnings, um, the questions that we have that are a part of this time, and the value that would be a part of engaging those things that just ground us more, give us greater sense of not only identity, but just self-satisfaction and um, and just feel better in our activities and our relationships. Um, we may settle for just kind of, you know, ho-hum. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody has their own choice with that. But uh, so, I mean, crisis is opportunity. That's, again, not to be too plain with the semantics of it, but crisis is opportunity in this regard. There are certainly crises that are just traumatic and damaging, but the crisis that most of us have moving into this time of life is opportunity. And if we understand that, I think, you know, we're, we're getting ahead of the game. Yeah, and I think um, my own dad's experience, he worked as a lawyer until he was about 85 years old, and he kept telling me, Landis, I, I don't know what I would do if I retire. And you've probably heard that many times from many people, and I think uh, people sort of understand, um, you know, from a higher-level learning situation that, yeah, this could be an opportunity, but a lot of times they just don't know how to explore that opportunity. And you talk about that in the book. Uh, you talk about people finding meaning in different ways. It doesn't have, you don't have to learn to play the flute or become, you know, a best-selling writer. I mean, you talk about a Marine who found purpose in his grandchildren, a person who found purpose in volunteering. How do you encourage people uh, 
you know, where do you tell them to go look to find their purpose? Well, uh, there are lots of different ways to do that. So oftentimes it's going to be a little bit more um, tailor-made, a little more custom-made with my client just based on what I know about them. But if I gave some general response to that, um, it's going to be, uh, again, that I said for uh, taking account, taking stock, and more directly, that's going to be, I encourage people to spend some time thinking about and making a few lists. And those lists include, well, there's one way to do this, and I know we're, we're just audio with this. So if you can imagine a, a, a four square co- uh, quadrant, um, and on the, on the y-axis, it's going to be um, skills, you know, from low, medium, high. And on the x-axis, it's going to be interests, low, medium, high. So if, if, uh, if uh, your listeners can envision that, maybe even draw it out for themselves if they want. So there's four squares there. So in the bottom left square, that's going to be low skill, low interest. Probably not a lot of stuff that's going to be put there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So in the uh, upper left quadrant, that's going to be high skill, low interest. Could be some things there, um, but, you know, it's, it's a it's a... Well, let me say it this way. That, I said high skill, low interest. So that those things probably just maybe you do them if there's some reason for that. The work is going to be in the other two quadrants. The upper right quadrant, okay, that's going to be high skill, high interest. So identifying things that one might, you know, make a list and then sort of chart them on this four square quadrant that go up there. Um, those are the things that are going to support um, definition and certainly capacity. And those are the things that a person would want to engage in more, explore more, you know, work with more uh, as, a, as an important part of this time of life. Also, the uh, lower right quadrant, which is gonna be low skill, high interest. That's an interesting area because I really like this and I'm not so good at it. And then that becomes a discerning process, you know, do is my interest high enough that I'm going to be a bulldog with this and I'm going to get better at it? That's a great thing to do. Or is it just not in my wheelhouse? And I, we could call it a grieving process or an acceptance process. You know, I, you know, I'm trying to think of an example here. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to race Formula One, uh, you know, and, and I'd have to consider, you know, age and those, you know, we, our skills, shift and change. Not that I had that when I was younger, but, um, so, but the idea that, you know, whipping around those, you know, those curves and handling things, I probably don't, you know, I don't have the skills for that, but if I'm really interested in that, I'm gonna have to come to terms with that. Maybe it means I shift that. Maybe I just become, you know, a rabid fan and I, I get down to road Atlanta as much as I can, or, you know, get over to, uh, 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 Le you know, uh, 24 hours at Le Mans or something like that and, you know, just take it from a different angle, but that still becomes an important part of my experience and who I am. So lots of different ways that we can go after exploring some of these things. No, that's, that's a great illustration as I'm listening to you. I'm thinking, uh, okay, if I'm in there in Hughes, on Hughes' couch trying to figure out uh, what I want to do in the third age, he's pro- you're probably going to be asking me things like, uh, well, Landis, uh, tell me about some of your skills. What do you like? I mean, wh- what have you learned over the years and how have you learned to just, just tell me some of the things you do well. And then also, 
tell me some of the things you're interested in, you know, and then you kind of figure out uh, where those twains meet and, and move forward. That's great. Hey, uh, before we, I've got more questions, of course, I've got some more quotes from the book and I've got some writing questions. Before we do that, I thought we'd have a little reading from the book, if uh, if you can do that for us and just tell us where you are in the book uh, before you do it and maybe set it up in just a couple of minutes. We'd, we'd love to hear it. All righty. Well, I'm going to start on page 39, and this is in the first section of the book. And uh, the first section of the book is looking at identity and meaning. And in particular, this essay, and I won't read all of it, but this essay is going after the idea of legacy. And legacy is another one of those, another one of those terms that can have sort of a, a, a grandiose character to it. You know, we see people's names on buildings and endowments and those sorts of things. Legacy is something that each of us um, engages and imparts um, just by the mere fact of being alive. You know, there are people around us that we interact with that are going to take something from us. That's legacy. So I'll just read some of this. Um, we'll get a little bit of a Charlotte reference into some of these things here. So this is starting on page 39. It has often been said that there is nothing new under the sun. In modern music, you can see three or four chord patterns repeated throughout many, if not most, songs. Even if things considered to be, excuse me, even in things considered to be unique, we can see repeating patterns. Snowflakes are fractals in which the microscopic crystal that make up the flake look much like the flake itself. Tree bark and broccoli buds or snowflakes and thumbprints, either common or unique, much of our experiences and environments are pattern-based. These patterns can and do have variants, but one needn't step too far back to see the resonant character. My great-uncle, Arvel Hogan, was a member of the traditional band, the Briarhoppers, the Charlotte, North Carolina radio station that first signed them, known as WBT, called it hillbilly music. They had a pretty good run for many decades, dating back to their humble beginnings in the Firestone Textile Mills of Gastonia, North Carolina in 1934. The Briarhoppers traveled the world, sharing their tight blend of high harmonies and old-time stringed instruments. In 1996, a few years before Arvel's death, they were honored at the North Carolina History Museum for their endemic contribution to the state's folkloric culture. I remember wandering through the band's exhibit before going into the auditorium for their performance. There was a rich collection of photos and varied memorabilia detailing the band's life and music, artifacts of a former time. I learned the name Briarhopper was a reference to young folks leaving the farms of Appalachian Mountains to come down to the mill towns and big cities to find work. I recently spoke with Kristen Scott Benson, Arvel's granddaughter. Kristen is an accomplished musician in her own right, still in the prime of her career. As I write this book, she is a five-time International Bluegrass Music Association's Banjo Player of the Year and the recipient of the 2018 Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass Music. In addition to her solo work, she has been a member of the Grammy-nominated and two-time IBMA Entertainers of the Year group the, the Graskels. I was interested in hearing more about Kristen's relationship with her grandparents, Arvel and Evelyn. She started with this inspired sense of legacy. 
When I think about the marriage I want, I think of them. When I think about the parent I want to be, I think of them. When I think about the Christian I want to be, I think of them. I felt this way even when I was 12 years old. Kristen described a picture hanging in her kitchen with the caption, Laugh Like Mima and Papa. And she shared an anecdote of her grandfather's assiduous faith, which included not cursing. Quote, he loved his Atlanta Braves and loved and hated Bobby Cox. I never heard him curse. The closest he would come would be to say, Bobby Cox! And that was when you knew he was frustrated with the game. I'll stop there. But it goes <laughs> much further in, in talking about Kristen's experience and how she was influenced by Arvel and, and many other folks as well. Yeah, that's great. WT, known as Big Ways back in the day. Yeah, that's when we played that music. Um, well, that's great. I've got a couple of quotes I want to share from the book. And then uh, on one of them or two of them, I've got a few questions. But uh, these sort of stuck out at me. Um, you got one from Lauren Bacall that says, Here's a test to find out whether your mission in life is complete. If you are still alive, it isn't. Um, and then uh, when you retire, if you had a busy job, you take your busyness with you. Bill Carson, that's the story you told about a fellow who got involved in the Alta Pass Apple Orchard, which my wife and I visited last fall. And it's, it's a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, I think we've already talked about, the, you know, how do people find their own apple orchard uh, in their third age. So I'm going to throw a few more at them here. Um, act as if you do make a difference, William James. Um, and then life is short. It's up to you to make it sweet, Sadie Delaney. Um, and then the older we are, the more we lose. This is a simple truth, but there's potential for more gains. We can always summit new ground in age and understanding. Um, and then I want, to, I want to ask you about this next quote. When gratitude is maintained as a regular practice, the empirical data shows consistent improvement in one's overall mental health. Can you talk about that? Because I think we sometimes underestimate, um, you know, if we're grumbling around or, or we've got something on our mind, you know, just stopping to be grateful for certain things. It, it does... Well, you say it has some empirical support behind it. Can you talk about that? Sure. That's something that's definitely come up in the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 15 years or so. So there, I also reference a, um, a TED Talk there uh, connected with that. With The guy's name is David Stendel Ross. And um, so he talks about gratitude. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of research around it. But we've we've been oriented again i'm speaking generally we've been oriented to pursue happiness life liberty and the pursuit of happiness i mean that pretty much right out of the gate there we go uh, i don't know what how it was set up with the with the original declaration out of charlotte but uh but uh <laughs> the uh life liberty and the pursuit of happiness um and and that, you know not not to make light of that but that's that's fine but it also gives us a bit of a mystery because um you know, happiness has a lot of kind of external contingency to it. A lot of times it's hard for us to orient to, you know, things change. We're happy today. And if something changes and we're not happy, gratitude, these are both abstractions in a sense, but gratitude has a much more interior internal character to it. And the research abundantly supports when we focus on gratitude, um, we become happier. And so it's fine. Again, happiness in and of itself 
if if we look at that as the byproduct, then it's we are absolutely the better for it. If we're going after gratitude, and you know, and I say that with all the respect for people who have hard challenges in their life, lots of struggles in their life. I'm not suggesting it's always a simple thing to do. And you know, with respect to you know the gratitude, when we orient to that, if we just try to make ourselves think we're th- we're grateful it may come up a little hollow for us. So it's a good exercise for us to go into some more direct application. Um, you know, Landis, uh, you know, I'm grateful to you. That's one statement. Another statement, Landis, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to meet you. We got to talk. I got to learn some things about you and your books, and I was not exposed to them before, and they're really great. And uh, and your podcast, and you know, I'm I'm a better person for that. I I know on a material level that that helps me, and I'm grateful for that. So, you know, that gets you in a space that's just very different. And and as I said, you know, the the research really looks at, um, you know, just mood enhancement that is substantive um, when we go after something like gratitude rather than I want to be happy. How do I become happy? Mm. Yeah, and I'm grateful for this opportunity. And if you can stay with us, we're going to keep talking for a little bit longer here. Uh, but you mentioned you want to talk about creativity. I want to do that. But beforehand, there was a quote that I want to ask you about. You said, we third-agers need to take care not to become deaf to our world. I'm very curious about that statement. Could you flesh that out a minute? Well, we certainly know that the world is rapidly changing, and um, it's it's no small thing to consider what's going on uh, before and during, and if we want to qualify this as after the pandemic. Um, you know, there are, there are substantial changes that really have, in many ways, turned over much of how we relate to each other. Um, you know, the communication styles, the digital age, so what is it that we use to access resources um, so on a very logistical level, we need to keep somewhat abreast of what's happening in our world. It's, it's not to say that we need to consider that we're going to tool around as, as quickly on all the digital uh, devices du jour as younger folks, but uh, it's too easy for us to fall into some sort of uh, meme or uh, gif that's, you know, an old person who, who can't handle the phone and they have to hand it off to the eight-year-old to fix, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> And, and that's, you know, it's fine. We can, you know, we make jokes with that, but um, we need to stay connected. And, and another thing about that, um, we, it, it won't serve us to live in a third aged silo. Um, it does not serve us. Uh, it is so important that we do have uh, intergenerational connectivity. Um, it, it serves them, it serves us, and them is, you know, across generations. So uh, we are all the better for it. So, so we need to know how to speak some of the language, literal and figurative, of the younger generations. And uh, we need to help them learn our language as well, and we're all the better for it. And speaking of silos, just because we might have more time on our hands to watch uh, television doesn't need, mean we need to uh, watch all of the opinion commentators on on cable news uh because that can turn into a silo oh quickly yes that's (laughs) as well yes that Uh, is all right so creativity when when you when i had you send me some material one of the things you said was you could talk endlessly about creativity um you said how it's uh innate capacity for each person um and i want to start with a quote uh by tip o'neill former speaker of the house 
who, who you quote in your book as saying, you can teach an old dog new tricks and this old dog wants to learn. So is that part of the idea here that uh, we need to be open to learning new things? Yes, that is absolutely uh, the idea behind that. Um, you know, that the, the phrase is an old dog, you know, I, help me with that. Something like old dog, you know, it's not going to learn new tricks. You can't teach an old but, dog yes, new tricks. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, and so <laughs> I was, I was appreciative of his uh, reframing that and flipping that over. Um, our, our cognitive capacity does not diminish with respect to our ability to be critically, you know, to be critical thinkers, to engage in problem solving. Um, you know, we certainly can have some issues with memory loss because there is some cognitive decline. We, we use the phrase senior moment um, to represent that, but it's, it's, it matters that we don't confuse or generalize is probably a better word. The idea that I'm slowing down and therefore, you know, I, I don't have as much to offer. I'm going to become more dependent on other people. Of course, we want interdependence. We want that uh, reciprocity that's where everybody gains. But we have more and more a well of experience that can, I'm not going to say it always does, but can lead to wisdom. Um, and we don't lose our capacity for, for critical problem solving, which is a big uh, component of creativity. Um, so we can learn new tricks. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's certainly research, if we jump to an easy kind of quick low-hanging fruit, uh, research looks at uh, learning foreign language and it's much easier for, for kids to learn a foreign language than it is for uh, someone who is much older. Okay, yeah, that, that may be true, but that's, that's a very narrow um, sort of consideration with respect to what it is that we can do that still um, facilitates and kind of reinforces um, our cognitive processes, you know, the things that we can do that are creatively based um, and that, again, both support our experience and, and our loved ones and the people around us. So, And, and one of the uh, avenues for that is uh, lifelong learning, whether it be through online classes or classes at the local library or listening to podcasts or li watching YouTube channels or just gathering information because as you say in another section of your book, irrespective of our age and physical changes, we are lifelong creators. We retain the capacity for beauty throughout our lives. And, and you're also essentially saying we're also lifelong learners to help us become lifelong creators. Yes. Uh, I would say uh, chicken and egg, hand and glove, however you want to frame that. Um, one of the one of the, one of the interests for me in that third section on creativity was to really um, embolden and empower people to look at their own um, character and direction of their creative process. Too often, that word gets um, sort of assigned to a very small subset of people who have this wonderful skill set that is in the visual arts, in the, you know, in music and other sorts of expressions, material expressions of creativity. And we think that's so amazing. And I'm just in awe of that. And I don't have those skills. And so we just sort of fall off or fall away from the idea of creativity being a part of our experience. It's much broader than that. Uh, we each have our own way of, of expressing and engaging it. 
and we need to know that. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, you know it it makes our lives richer and makes the people around us makes their experiences richer. It's all it's all essential. All right, a couple of writing life questions. Um, you talked about. Uh, with respect to this idea of the craft of writing, that you love to talk about the self-editing process and the vulnerability in the craft. And I'm, let's just, I want to hear your thoughts on uh, the vulnerability of being a writer. Well, um, you've had so many guests on your show, and so certainly we know there's some, some differentiation with fiction and nonfiction. Um, fiction can give us a little more cover, although I don't know that I've heard many uh, interviews uh, where there's not been some reference to or question about how much of your story is in this story, right? I mean, and it's a fair question. It's a good question, and you know, it's you know, we it, it comes from you know we we draw out of our experience and our research, so that's that's a fair question. Um, but we still can have some cover with that. Um, but even in fiction writing, there still is there's something that I am giving birth to. And I am going to not keep it in my closet. I mean, we can keep it in our closet, but if, if we're if we're publishing, it's not staying in the closet. Um, so it's going out there for other people to make their own conclusions about, draw their own uh, interpretations, and from that may extend to how they view us. So there is a vulnerability that is a part of that process. Certainly when we move into the nonfiction arena, I've written some fiction, um, and it, yes, if you ask me the question, my, my stuff is all over it. Um, but there's enough cover for me to plausibly, uh, I, I guess in, in, you can clean up my uh, uh, armchair uh, attorney speak here, but plausible deniability, um, you know, that I can say, oh, that's just something I thought of when I was uh, sitting in the grocery store looking at, uh, you know, uh, people in the checkout line or something. So, but in nonfiction, uh, there very much is a vulnerability there. That particularly if you're doing memoir, um, and you know that's you're just bearing part of your soul, and um, that's that's not an easy thing to do. That is, you know, it's it's got its challenge to it because it does open us up to um, judgment, and uh, that's that's a challenge. That's a good point. We know some. Very fine writers over the years have said that uh, you know fiction has to ring more true than nonfiction for it to be believable, and for that to happen, sometimes there have to be some true life experiences that the author brings, you know, to the writing table when they write that work in nonfiction. So anyway, we're going to finish up here with a, uh, a question we sometimes ask. I'm going to change it just slightly because we we sometimes ask it in the, in, in the way of your path as a writer, but since we've been talking about creativity, if you could tell your younger creative self, that person who was just starting out with this idea, I want to be more creative, something of value you've learned since then um, that might uh, help that younger creative self get the momentum to do their thing, uh, what would it be? Well, uh, in, in true therapist form, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give a two-parter here and I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to validate my younger self's experience. So I would start with saying not don't be afraid. Um, it would be, and this is not original to me, but it would be a variation on the, 
you know, be afraid, but do it anyways. So, but it would be something to the effect of, yeah, this is hard and this is scary and you may not feel like you've got the skills to engage this, but you do. So feel the fear and do it anyways. Mm, I love that. Feel the fear and do it anyways. That's perfect way to think about moving into this third third age um, feel it uh, and do it uh, because if you're doing there's not a lot of time for thinking about you know things that might happen otherwise Unhealthy you do. right yeah <laughs> exactly Stop well Hugh this has been great I really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast today I've learned a lot as you can tell I was getting a free therapy session here today myself you know asking all these questions so thank you for uh, you're very that and not sending me a bill you know? <laughs> uh, and uh, wish you the best with this uh, collection. Listeners, you can find Finding Beauty in the Gray, Stories and Verse from the Third Age, I assume, wherever books are found. And uh, you can find more out about Hugh on our uh, website uh, in the show notes. Uh, Hugh, um, thanks for being here. Landis, it was great fun. I appreciate it and certainly enjoy your show. Hey, folks, as we wrap up another episode, we just want to say thank you for listening. Um, we appreciate you being here and we hope you enjoyed the show. We also hope you'll join our community. To do that, feel free to poke around our website, charlotteleaderspodcast.com. The best way to stay in touch is to sign up for our twice-monthly newsletter, and you can do that via the contact page on the website. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. We're not going to do that. You can also use our website to read our community blog and show notes, submit an elevator pitch to be played on the show, submit a blog post, give us feedback, submit to be on the show, become a Patreon supporter, and to see what's coming up on the show next, order our podcast books, or listen to previous episodes. So many things, and the best part, it's all free. Until the next episode, this is Hannah LaRue, and on behalf of Sarah Archer and Landis Wade, read on, write on, and rock on.